because we're going on a journey this morning. And what I want to encourage you is we're going fast forward on a journey this morning. And 500 years is going to whip by you. And what I want you to do is you're going to see the journey of the Israelites, but I guarantee you're going to see your journey as well. And so when the bit that's you goes past, just grab it, stick it in your pocket, and think about it at lunch or dinner or when you go to bed. Jesus B.C., Discovering Christ before Christmas, this whole thing that the story of Jesus didn't just start uh, with the manger. The story of Jesus was written so incredibly in the thousands and thousands of years before he came. We've been showing you this timeline, and uh, I hope you just continue to look at that. Because, again, we have all these stories, bits and bobs all over the place, but it's good to know when you're reading the Bible, and, and I hope this inspires you to read it. And I hope this inspires you to know what the stuff you're reading is about, what the big picture it's, it's part of. And right now, as I said, and I apologize in advance, if you have an attention span like mine, I apologize in advance. But we're going from where Ali finished last week, 500 years to David. Eight books, nine books of the Bible. So are you ready? Whether or not, here we go. So... Um, as we know, this whole story started right in the back of man's disobedience. Adam and Eve totally blew it right off the start, but right in the midst of their blowing it, right in the midst of the reality of the consequences of their, of their actions, God plants this seed with them. And he says, the seed of Eve will crush the serpent's head, even though the serpent will only strike its heel. And, and that's where the journey of hope begins. The next thing we ran into was Abraham. And we have no idea why God chose Abraham. No idea. But God gave Abraham this massive promise of hope and purpose and, and, and blessing for his family, but also blessing for the entire world. And Abraham gave, or God gave Abraham a son. And through his son that he was asked to sacrifice, we get this incredible picture. He's going to kill his own son, but God stops him last minute. He can't kill his son. That's what the nations around you do, but you're not going to do this. This was a test. And this picture we're given that God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. You will not be the lamb. And then we got the story of Jacob. I told this a couple weeks ago. And again, we have no idea why God chose the scheming son and not the strong hunting son, but he did. And through Jacob's 12 sons, we get an expanding picture of the promise. But one thing we get is, is that it's not through Joseph. We all know the story of Joseph. We love the story of Joseph. It's not through the story of Joseph, the obedient, the suffering son, the son that would become the king of Egypt. It's not through him that the promise goes forward. It's through Judah, the, one of the sons who tried to kill Joseph, but the son who in the end was repentant. And it's through Judah that we get this incredible picture that God puts out for us of the Lion of Judah, the future king that all the nations of the world would bow down to. And then last week, Ali gave us this picture of Moses. Moses called again by God out of a crazy situation and asked to stand before the powers of Egypt. But as he does it, and after all the plagues, we get this incredible picture of the Lamb. The lamb that they would have to kill, they would have to shed the blood, they would have to put the blood on their doorposts, and it was only the homes that had the blood covering them that would be saved from God's judgment. And so this picture of a promise is coming together. A picture of a promised land, 
a picture of a great nation, a picture of a nation that would be a blessing to the world, of a promised king, of the Lion of Judah, and now this incredible, strange picture of a lamb whose blood would be shed to save God's people from judgment, from sin. This incredible foreshadow. And this is still 1,500 years before Jesus was born. And in the middle of this, you can't help but see this overwhelming theme that despite the people, despite where they're at, despite what they do, God blesses them and he blesses them and he restores them. And and you can't help but see that it's not because of their good choices. In fact, it's absolutely in spite or despite their bad choices that God relentlessly pursues them, that God relentlessly chases them. And this story is about God's promise. It's not about the good and bad choices of the people. And that gets us all the way to the 12th chapter of the second book of the Bible. And we have eight books to go. But the story gets very cool. Because following the Passover, the Israelites are led by Moses out of Egypt. They make this escape. That's a pretty cool picture. Make this escape through the, through the Red Sea as, as Pharaoh's army chases them and it collapses down around them. And basically, here's the whole book of Exodus in, in three parts. God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments to show them a better way to live and to show them how to relate to this creator, this holy and awesome God. But, true to their story again, and we're going to see this again and again, almost immediately after getting the Ten Commandments, almost immediately after getting this law, the the people totally blow it. And they put all their gold together and and, and make this statue. And instead of worshipping the God who they've just seen do all these miracles and bring them out of Egypt, they start worshipping a calf that they made with their hands. And the question for us is, why? We can't fathom this. Why would you worship a calf? But the answer in the context is, is because that's what everybody else did. That's what the Egyptians did. That's what the Canaanites did. That's what the Philistines did. That's what everybody else did, and that's what they wanted to be as well. But God has mercy on them. These people who are saved and rebel and are saved and rebel and forget. And Exodus ends, we're at the end of the second book, with a tabernacle built to represent God's premise, God's um, presence among the people. But it also ends with, with the reality that only, well, only Moses will be able to enter it. But the, when the fire and the smoke is there, no one can enter the tabernacle because no one can be in the presence of of God. And that's the big problem, a holy God, and how do we get anywhere near his presence? And yet the, the promise is sort of pointing towards this stuff. So jumping on, the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus is the answer to the problem we have. We have holy God, we have unholy people. God gives in Leviticus the people the law, and he shows them a way to live in his presence. And he shows them a clear set of rituals and rules that will help them to be, as it says there, a holy people. And this is totally confusing to us now, but a a really important thing to remember is that every other nation around them, you watch History Channel, you watch everything, every other nation around them is scrambling for ways to appease the gods. When things don't go good, how do we appease the god? When famine comes, how do we appease the god? We have a sick child, how do we appease the gods? 
And every nation around them is making up more and more extravagant, more and more brutal ways to appease the gods. All sorts of temple prostitution. And it always goes, if you hear about history, every nation in the world has gone to the point of sacrificing people. And it's almost always the wealthy and the strong sacrificing the poor and the weak, sacrificing women and children to their God, to their gods. But God's law came in total contrast to this. It was clear. It was not about appeasing the gods. God's law was actually about holy and about just living. It was about caring for those who were less powerful. It was about upholding those who were less powerful. And it was about helping the people recognize their own personal sins and create sacrifice and rituals to to pay for these and to connect them to a holy God. And the book of Leviticus ends, we've just jumped through a whole book here. The book of Leviticus ends with Moses calling the people to faithfulness to this and to obedience. But... He also warns them that if they're unfaithful, that God will bring destruction on them. And they're about to go to the promised land, but God will cast them out of the promised land. And sadly, and this is where we can hear our story in this, it's very clear again and again that they can't be faithful to this story. And as I was reading through this, Romans chapter 7 pops into my head, and I think If there's a passage in the Bible that I think any person in the world can relate to, Romans 7 is it. This is the message version of it. Or no, sorry, this is the new living. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I want to be a better person, but I can't. I don't want to be that bad person, but I end up doing it. Paul ends up saying, oh, woe is me. Who will save me from this? And that's the story of this world, self-help books, counseling. We need, we know, we need to improve, but we're stuck in these things. That's the story of you whipping past you. How do you grab on? Paul, 2,000 years later, provides hope for this. But the Israelites are stuck in the middle of this story. But despite their failings, God provides a way for the people to live around his presence. And it's interesting that while the Leviticus started with this fire and smoke in the tabernacle and Moses not able to enter the tabernacle, Moses, God's speaking to Moses from in there and he's standing out here. The next book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, starts with God speaking to Moses in the tabernacle. So God has created a way for these people to be in the presence of God. But they could only be at peace with him if they kept this law. A better law, but only if they kept it. We're in the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers is given its name because it starts with Moses counting the people. And if you want to avoid a boring bit, but don't say, Lord, help me understand this. It's just list after list after list of people. But but it's good stuff. And the story starts in the book of Numbers with the people still at Sinai. And they they travel through the wilderness for six months. And they complain the entire way. And then they get to the wilderness of Paran. And we all know, at least I I hope you all know this song. What happened at the wilderness Paran? They're right on the edge of the promised land and they're looking in. And 
Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. And two were good. What did they see when they spied on Canaan? Ten were bad and two were good. Some saw giant, strong and tall. Some blah, 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 blah. How many people know that song? What? That's it? Get to your brother in church. You'll learn great songs. They went to the promised land. They looked in. Ten of them saw beautiful, huge grapes, amazing produce, a land flowing with milk and honey. But all ten of them saw were big, strong people and were the Israelites were tiny. But two of them, Joshua and Caleb, saw the same stuff, but they said, God promised us this land. But who did they listen to? They listened to the ten. And all of Israel got exactly what they listened to. They got a wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And they got a punishment for not listening to to the two. They got a punishment for not listening to the promise of God. None of you will enter the the, the promised land. Only our kids out in junior church, they're the only ones that are going to enter the promised land. And Leviticus in Numbers is the story of this wandering for 40 years. And it's a story of God giving and explaining the law more thoroughly. Showing them how God will dwell near them. But even with this law, there's still a problem. Because only one man can enter the tabernacle. Everyone else has to stay back or die. And only he can enter when the conditions are just right. So we're at the end of the book of Leviticus. We have Abraham's nation, which has grown into a huge nation. But we definitely do not have a blessing yet. We definitely aren't a blessing to the whole world yet. There is definitely not a seed of Eve who's going to crush Satan's head and destroy evil. And there's no great king, the Lion of Judah. But we have a starting point. We have this connection made with God. And the story goes on. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The fifth book of the Bible is the last one written by Moses. It's called the second law. And basically Moses just repeats and explains the law to them and implores them to be faithful to it. He he reminds them that their parents weren't faithful to it. And he says, but you guys be faithful to it. But then the book of Deuteronomy, this is a very quick run through, ends after 40 years saying that, as Moses says to the people, you won't. Be faithful to it. And you will be punished, just like your parents were punished. But he also says this, but the Lord your God will circumcise or transform your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and all your soul and you will live. One day, God will transform your hearts. And again, we get this promise slightly growing. And then Moses walks up Mount Nebo. Have you guys been to Mount Nebo, Ed and Liz? In Jordan. I took this picture two years ago. It wasn't as clear as it could have been. And he's looking over all of the promised land. That's the Dead Sea and Israel's in the background. And um, Jordan is right in the foreground. 
and he walks up after telling them this, after expanding the promise, but also telling them they won't be faithful, and he dies because Moses can't enter the promised land either. And when Moses died, Joshua became the leader of the people. Joshua, one of the ones who went in and saw that the promised land was takeable because God was with us. And this is really important in the story. This is where we get to this massive foreshadow because Joshua, Joshua's name literally means the Lord saves. And this is what we forget. This is what we don't know until we start Googling all this stuff like Ali and I have been doing over the last while. Joshua is the name that we should, that, or that we do translate as Jesus. We go, instead of going from the Hebrew or just keeping the Hebrew, Yeshua to English, we go from the Greek long story and we get to Jesus. So the book of Joshua could equally, equally be called Jesus. The book of Jesus, the Lord saves, but of course we call it Jesus and we get confused. And so we start the book of Joshua, the Lord saves, that we could equally translate as the book of Jesus, the Lord saves. And his name is this massive foreshadow. But the story of it is an even bigger picture. Because the people didn't cross into the promised land because of their great skill. They didn't cross into the promised land because of their cunning uh, ideas in battle. They, pro- they crossed into the promised land because finally, when God said, I will do this and I will show you the way, they finally believed and they stepped in. The people were getting ready to cross the Jordan and God said to the priests, when you step into the water, the waters will uh, stop upstream and you'll be able to walk across on dry land. And they, they had to step in. And when it came time to fight, they should have been, when they came to Jericho, we all know the story and we probably have songs about that as well. They're not building ramparts against the walls. They're not trying to starve the people out. They don't have a cunning plan of surprise. We'll go to the back door, you know, underneath, under the bridge or whatever. God says, put one foot in front of the other and march and march and march and the city will be destroyed. And after seven days of marching and then shouting, the walls fall and they move in and destroy a city that had already been defeated because the walls collapsed on it. And the story of Yeshua, the Lord saves, is such a powerful picture of our story. Ephesians 2.8 says this, For it is by grace... You have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You better believe not a single Israelite was boasting about what's happening. We look like idiots. We're marching around the city. Marching around the city. They're laughing at us. And all of a sudden the walls fall and we can walk in and take it. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. We need to hear that because we get to the place where God, I don't deserve this or I, di- or I did deserve this and I don't anymore. There's no way I can get there. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's the Israelite story and it's our story. And the Israelites go in then and, and conquer the land, sort of, 
<laughs> they don't really do what God called them to do. And, and this is a complicated bit. And I'm just going to jump over it because it's too hard to explain in many talks. But the Israelites were commissioned by God to be his righteous judgment on the Canaanites. And it talks about this. It talks about the massive sin of the Canaanites. In fact, a lot of the laws to the Jews explain the sexual laws of all animals and all sorts of things. It's crazy. And the laws about, for example, about against, uh, um, laws against sacrificing children. These things we think are obvious were so rife among the Canaanites. So the Israelites were called to execute God's judgment. And they sort of do. They sort of conquer the promised land and the tribes of Israel are given all their bits of land. And some of the promise has been fulfilled. The family of Abraham has become a great nation. Millions of people over the last 500 years. And not only now were they on the edge of the promised land, now they have conquered the promised land. And now we have this guy, Joshua, the Lord saves. Yeshua, Jesus, the Lord saves, who's brought his people into the promised land, who has this amazing name, who is a descendant of Judah. Could he be the Lion of Judah? Could this be the one? But like we're going to see in this story, it becomes very clear quickly that he's not the one. The first time I read this next bit, it blew me away. Next, we start the book of Judges. They've just conquered the land. They've just seen all, God do all these amazing things. But the book of Judges chapter 2 starts with this. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. This is the kids of the ones who came through. The Israelites did evil things in the Lord's sight and, and served the images of Baal, the Canaanite God. They abandoned the Lord and the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. Joshua's totally not the one. He did amazing things, but they failed to pass these stories on to their kids. But as the stories continue, we do get the picture more and more that what's going to be anticipated is a warrior like Joshua. What's going to be anticipated is a great and mighty king that's going to take the land. So we're at Judges, and we're going to really quickly skim through Judges. But again, there's some amazing points to jump on here. The book of Judges is a, is a clear reality of, of the interaction between God and man and just the abysmal nature of man. Basically, as I said, the people go into the land and they fail to drive out the Canaanites and the Canaanites that, that remain become a source of temptation for the Israelites. They, they have their God and they have their laws, but they look around and they go, well, I want that temporal sacrifice because that has prostitutes and I want that God because that's a bunny and that one's really cool and I want to serve that one. And I really like the idea. I like that they can eat shellfish and I can't eat shellfish. And see those being able to mix two types of fabric? Oh, I love my cottons and my polys. And they obviously don't do that. But they look all around and they're tempted by and they're swayed by these people. And they become like them. And God gives them what they want. And they become conquered by these people. And they become slaves to these people. And then in slavery in the book of Judges, they cry out to God, Lord, we recognize we're wrong. We're slaves. Help us turn back to you. 
And God comes to the rescue. He sends a judge and he rescues them. And then they get peace and prosperity under this judge. And what do we do in peace and prosperity? Oh, look at the nice bunny. Or oh, look at the good looking girls. Or oh, look at whatever. And they go back to those things. And the cycle happens over and over and over again. How similar is that to the cycle of our lives? How similar is that to our story? We've all had, and I wouldn't even put in the past, we all have patterns and destructive things in our lives. We don't even, the, the list is endless. Greed, lust, gossip, lies, manipulation, fear, insecurity, jealousy. We all have these things around us. And we, we succumb to them because we're human. And then either we recognize the wrong, we read in the Bible and we recognize the wrong, or just we hit the reality of the wrongness, the consequences of them, and we say, Lord, forgive us, I recognize I'm wrong and I repent to you. And God's good, so he does. And we actually gain peace and life knowing we have that forgiveness. And now the life of the Spirit in us. But then we get comfortable and complacent. And we start moving back into those things because we leave traces of them in our lives. And the cycle starts over and over again. The consequences come or the recognition come. Lord, help. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 6, verse 12 to 13. And this is a real call to us as Christians. And this is a real challenge. And it's where the Israelites fell. Read Judges. It's such a story of our lives. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. We recognize all that stuff's around us. We know that that's not healthy. Forget about even just being sin or or being a, a rule. We recognize it's not healthy, it's not good but I just want to get near it or I just want to look at that or I I just want to say this little thing to this person that can't be there. We run errands. I love that expression. We run errands around that old way of life. But God calls us to get it out of our lives and to live holy and righteous lives. But through the judges, God also shows us his clear plan to rescue the people. And I'm just going to talk but three of them in one line each. With Deborah, the whole army joins them. They go out to battle gladly to take on the Canaanites of the Philistines. They all join God together. We know this is right, and they defeat the army. We're with you, God, and we're sometimes with them, aren't we? We're with them. With Gideon, God says, I actually don't need all of you with me. I'm cutting down your army, and I'm cutting down your army, and I'm cutting down your army to 300 men to take on an entire army. God says it's actually not about your might. It's about my might. But with Samson, the strangest, the most immoral, the most disastrous of all the judges, God says it's not about you at all. With one man, I will defeat your enemies. And there's a million ways we could unpack the life of Samson, but here's one powerful one. In Samson's life and in his actions, he was actually a disaster. But it was in his death that he saved the Israelites. 
when he brought down this temple of Dangan down on himself. In Samson's death, he killed his enemies, which gave freedom to the Israelites. But here's the crazy contrast of Jesus. In, in, in his death, he saved his enemies and he gave freedom to his enemies. Romans 5.8 says this, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still enemies. It's not about your good and bad choices, although God's now calling us into lives of holiness, but it's while you're enemies that Christ died for us. And that's an incredible picture. God, I want to earn this. You can't earn it. You're an enemy. And the picture of Jesus grows and grows as we whip through the Old Testament. And we're almost done. The picture of, or the, the period of judges goes into the time of kings and First and Second Samuel and all that stuff. Eight or nine books, 500 years, boom. The last judge of Israel, Samuel anointed the first king of Israel, Saul. And he was what Israel asked for. And he was exactly what they were hoping for, a king like their kings. He was tall, he was strong, he was the best looking guy among all. He's the king, this is what we need. But he quickly became very unkinglike. He quickly became the wrong man and, and God withdrew from him. And Samuel then anointed David, who was absolutely not what they were looking for. It wasn't even what his dad was looking for. Imagine that, your dad... Samuel comes to anoint one of your sons and your dad doesn't even invite you to the party. He has to get brought in. But David does show his faithfulness. He shows his prayerfulness and he becomes an incredible warrior. Could David finally be the promised one? Is this the one that's come? He's in the line of Judah. Is this the promised one that's going to save us? And of course, we're listening to this story, knowing how it ends, and we know now that David's sins, that he's just as famous for his sins as he is for his righteous acts. And we know that he succumbed to his own desires. We know that he called for Bathsheba out of her house, the wife of one of his mighty men, Uriah, and basically forced himself upon her. He's the king. She can't do anything about it. She gets pregnant. How do I cover this up? Uriah, you've got to die. David is obviously not the one who's going to be blessing to the world. But just like his great, 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 I don't even know how many greats it is, but it's a few greats, grandfather Judah, one of the most important things about David is not that he was perfect, but that he was repentant when his sin was exposed to him. And being confronted by Nathan the prophet, he first denies it and then just breaks in it. And David writes us this amazing psalm. Not about him, not about how good he is, but about God. Have mercy on me, O God. According to what? According to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion blot 
out the stains and my sins. We need to hear that again and again. God, if I could just do this better, if I could just do this right, I know I'm trying really hard. Have mercy on me, O oh God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sins. And God forgives David. But there's consequences, and we don't have time to go into those. But one of the really cool pictures, the first bit's not cool. His first son dies from Bathsheba. But his second son from Bathsheba will be the next anointed one, Solomon. David named him Solomon. What did God name him? Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord, the son of the adulterous relationship. Earlier in David's reign, Samuel prophesied this over David. He said, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. That's Solomon. But I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And the promise grows and grows. But what we have, and this is what I'm finishing with, is this real surprise that David brings into the picture as well that's not at all what the people expected. It's not what we would have expected. David's story and the Psalms and the prophetic things he tells are not just about victory, not just about triumph, but they're about the unbelievable suffering, unbelievable cost that it will take to bring God's promise to life. David wrote many Psalms, but it wasn't Psalm 23 that's a beautiful picture of peace and trust in the midst of all that's happening in life that Jesus quotes from the cross. It, it's Psalm 22, the psalm right before it. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, the psalm goes on, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you're enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In, your, in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. And in you, they trusted and were, put, and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. We have this picture on the cross. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. I am poured out like water. Sorry. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A, pa attack, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands. They pierce my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. 
but from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. All the rich, all the ends of the earth will remember you and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a yet unborn people, he has done it. And I love that theme because the start of it echoes what Jesus said in the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the end of it echoes Jesus' last words on the cross. It is finished. But God, I'm stuck in this and I can't do this and I can't overcome this. It is finished. But God, I'm not good enough. You know my life. You know my heart. You know the things I've done. It's finished. It's done. But he has done it. It is finished. A thousand years before Jesus was even born, David was writing this as a poem for the people. And it's incredible that this story unfolds and unfolds and this picture gets bigger and bigger of the promised one to have come. The picture gets bigger of Christmas. And I pray this morning that we can grab hold of some of that picture for us. Because the story of the Israelites is your story. But we're sitting beautifully on the other side of it. Let me pray. Father, help us hear your word. Distract our voice and distract the voice of the world from us and help us hear your word. And help us obey it and follow it. We thank you for the promise. We thank you for Jesus in your holy and awesome name.